What do you know about the book of Job off the top of your head? Just the first thing that pops into your head. And I asked quite a few people this question, and the two most common answers that I got were, number one, Job had a rough life. And number two, Job suffered a lot. Okay, both of those things are true. We're going to see both of those truths as we move through the book of Job. It's interesting to me that everyone who answered my question, what do you know, what comes into your mind first when you think about the book of Job, they spoke about Job, not God. And I don't intend to shame you if your first thought was rough life, suffered a lot. But when you read the Bible, if your first thought is about yourself rather than your first thought being about God, you've approached it wrongly. So the book of Job does teach us about Job and it does teach us about ourselves. That's not the main point. When you read your Bible, the book of Job, the book of Proverbs, the book of John, the book of Revelation, we talked about this when our men studied through Revelation, our women worked through Revelation, the primary thing that the Bible is communicating to the people of God is truth about who God is and what He's done to save sinners. We are not the center of that story, although we're blessed to be part of that story, God is the center of that story. And so as we think about the book of Job, uh, in its entirety, we want to make sure that we're God-focused in the way that we approach it. So we're going to work through Job Wednesday nights, January, February, and March. January, February, March. Somebody uh, this afternoon saw the notes that we had posted online and saw that week one we were only covering five verses in the book of Job. And I'll just be honest with, with what they said to me. They said, Please tell me you're not going to go through the book of Job like you went through Psalm 119. And we're not going to look at only five verses every single week. Because I don't know if you've paid attention, but Job is 40 plus chapters. It's a really, really long book. And so I'm, I'm putting you at ease tonight at the outset. We are not going to go verse by verse through the book of Job. Now we did that when we went through Ecclesiastes. Not that long ago on Wednesday nights, we looked at every single verse in the book of Ecclesiastes, much to the dismay of some of you, but we didn't skip anything. We're going to approach Job differently. It's not that we couldn't go verse by verse, but we're going to approach it in sections. And some of the sections are going to be really short, like tonight, five verses. Spoiler alert, some of the sections are going to be like 20 chapters in one shot. And we're going to take a whole big section and boil it down uh, to a few ideas. So January, February, March, we're going to work through the book of Job. So if your Bible's open, let's start by reading our passage for the night, the opening paragraph for the book of Job. You can't understand anything else that follows in the book of Job if you don't uh, first ground yourself in this introductory paragraph. So you follow along as I read. Job 1.1 says, There was a man in the land of Uz, whose name was Job. And that man was blameless and upright, one who feared God and turned away from evil. There were born to him seven sons and three daughters. He possessed 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, and 500 female donkeys, and very many servants, so that this man was the greatest of all the people of the east. His sons used to go and hold a feast in the house of each one on his day. And they would send and invite their three sisters to eat and drink with them. And when the days of the feast had run their course, Job would send and consecrate them. He would rise early in the morning and offer burnt offerings according to the number of them all. For Job said, it may be that my children have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. Thus Job did continually. Let's pray together. Father, tonight we're thankful for your word. We're thankful that it is a lamp to our feet and a light for our path. And we're thankful that it is forever firmly fixed in the heavens. And we're thankful for the honesty of a book like Job. And we ask for wisdom as we work our way through a challenging book of the Bible, 
We want to see truth first about you and also about ourself. And we want to be people who trust you and walk with you and know you. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. We're just going to work through this introductory material. We're going to think through the book of Job in its entirety and also these first five verses. And we're just going to ask a series of questions tonight and try to lay some foundation and some groundwork that will serve us well in the weeks ahead. So the first question may seem like an obvious one to you, but I think it's important. What is the book of Job? We open our Bibles, we read this old ancient story about a man that uh, it just almost seems like a fantastical kind of fairy tale. What is it that we're actually reading? So we'll start with this. The book of Job is reflective wisdom literature. It is reflective wisdom literature. And in calling it reflective wisdom literature, you understand I'm implying that there is other wisdom literature in the Bible that is not reflective wisdom literature. There's different kinds of wisdom literature in the Scriptures. I know when you were six and you memorized the books of the Bible and you memorized the groups of the books of the Bible, maybe you said these are the wisdom books, but not all wisdom works exactly the same in the Bible. So here's a quote from an Old Testament scholar named Tremper Longman. He says, Job is a wisdom book, but not all wisdom books are alike. Indeed, the message of both the book of Job and Ecclesiastes should keep the people, uh, should keep people from reading the rewards of Proverbs with undue optimism. So remember what we read earlier, Proverbs 3, you do these things, you'll be bursting with wealth and wine and wheat and prosperity and all of this sort of stuff. Look, in the Bible, there's two kinds of wisdom. One kind is called instructive wisdom, and it's the kind of stuff that you find in the book of Proverbs. And it's just sort of straightforward, short, pithy truisms, general statements about how life works, how God has designed things to work on this earth. And they are true enough to be proverbially true. They are proverbial wisdom. They are not universally always in every single situation true. And we talked about this distinction when we talked about the book of Ecclesiastes on Wednesday nights. And I told you back then what I'll tell you tonight, that Proverbs is instructive wisdom. It tells you how life generally works. Ecclesiastes and Job are like the footnotes to say, be sure to read the small print here. Because it may not always be exactly that straightforward. And if you're only reading the large print, the instructive wisdom of Proverbs, and you're not paying attention to the small print, Ecclesiastes and Job, you find yourself in a situation where Proverbs doesn't seem to be playing out exactly right, and you're just left scratching your head, and maybe you're left angry with God. And there's another kind of wisdom in the Bible. It's called reflective wisdom. It's because you have to read it and you have to reflect on it. You have to really think about it. Proverbs, pretty straightforward. Ecclesiastes and Job, you really have to wrestle with it. And you have to reflect on what they're saying and what it means and what the context is. And in both of these books, Job and Ecclesiastes, we're going to talk about this later tonight, you can't make sense of the beginning unless you can make sense of the end and tie it all together. So it's reflective wisdom. So, Number one, Job's reflective wisdom literature. Number two, it's a story and has character setting and plot. And so if you want to understand a story, uh, it's good to just ask the basic questions that we ask. You learn these maybe when you're in sixth grade, seventh grade, reading whatever novel you're reading. Who, what, when, where, why, how. You just sort of take all of those questions and you run the story through that grid and you make sure you're, you're familiar with and comfortable with the answers to all those questions. We're going to do a little bit of that tonight. So it's a story, and it's a story that is largely told through dialogue or conversation. In fact, that's the bulk of the book of Job, is just people talking to each other. The actual storyline of the book is not that long or that complicated. The complicated part is the middle of the book where people get to talking back and forth and you have to sort through all of this dialogue. So I'm just going to put a few things up on the screen 
these are not like you have to understand these things to make sense of the book of Job. They're just helpful to me in processing what we're dealing with uh, when we read Job as a piece of literature. So the first one is this. Job really has three parts. There's an introduction, and then there's a dialogue, a conversation in the middle of the book, and it's really long, and then there's a conclusion. And when you read the introduction, it's prose. It's just a story. It's just telling you a story. And when you read the dialogue, it's poetry. It's kind of like reading Shakespeare or something like that. Romeo and Juliet talk, and you say, why don't you just say you love each other? Well, I have to use all this flowery language. Well, that's how the author wanted to write it. He wanted to use poetry in the dialogue. So that's the middle. And then the end is conclusion, and it's more straightforward, easier to process easier to understand. Now, if you think about the, the dialogue in the book of Job, there's three main conversations. The first conversation, and I admit it's weird to even say this out loud, it's a conversation between God, Yahweh, and Satan. And our staff kind of read through the book of Job in preparation for this series. And when we came to this opening story dialogue of God and Satan, there was a lot of conversation about why are they even talking to each other? What in the world is going on? Why is Satan there? How, does, how is he there? I didn't think. It's just perplexing to people. But that's the first conversation. Then there's a long conversation between Job and his friends. And then most importantly in the book, there's a conversation between Yahweh and Job. And that's the real kicker of the book is this final conversation between the Lord and Job. So one more way we can break this down is we think about Job and his friends. He has a friend named Eliphaz, a friend named Bildad, a friend named Zophar. And then notice I put an asterisk by his friend Elihu. Because Elihu is different than all the other friends. And he's different in this respect. We'll get there in a few weeks. With all the first three friends, they talk and Job talks and they go back and forth and they go around about three times. At the end of that cycle, Elihu speaks, nobody responds to him, and everyone just moves on as if he didn't say anything. And then at the end of the book, this is strange, you've got to wrestle with this and we'll get there. At the end of the book, God has something to say about Job's other three friends, Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar, but God doesn't say anything good or bad at all about Elihu. Almost like he was not even there and no one even acknowledged him. So we'll sort that out when we get there. So look, these conversations, this is what I'm saying to you. These conversations in the book of Job, this is the number one challenge in interpreting the book as a whole. Okay, there's a lot of things in the book of Job that are perplexing, but the hardest interpretive challenge is reading these conversations. And here's why it's a challenge. As you read these conversations, some of the things that Job and his friends say are true. They say some true things. You read it and you say, that, I think that sounds right. But then the very next breath, they turn around and they say something and you read it and you say, I don't think that sounds quite right. It's because it's not. They're like you and me. There's some things that come out of their mouth that are spot on. And then there's other things that come out of their mouth that are completely out in left field. And Job's guilty of this and his friends are guilty of this. And I wish that maybe there were a color-coded version of the book of Job where you could say like the blue, these are good things that they said, these are true things. And the red or the green or whatever, these are the bad things they said. And they would just sort of sort it out for you. But that's the challenge in front of you as the reader is to go through this conversation, to read it in the context of the storyline of Job and to read Job itself in the context of the Bible and to say what is right and what is wrong. And I'll just be honest with you, it's really, really tricky. And uh, not all commentators agree as they try to sort through this conversation and make sense of it. So uh, it's a story, story told through dialogue, and I think it's a historical story. I don't want to spend a lot of time on this, but I just want to acknowledge it because some of you like to rabbit hole on the internet or you like to read books or watch YouTube videos. I think this is a historical story. So I'll be honest with you. There's some commentators, really smart guys, that don't think it's a historical story. They think it's more of a parable, okay? 
Think about Jesus t- uh, teaching in parables. He talks about there's a guy, there's a man, this happened, that happened. He tells all these stories. When you read the parables of Jesus, you know as the reader, he's not talking about real people. He's making this story up for a teaching tool. And there's a lot of people that think Job is a parable, that it didn't really happen. It's just a teaching tool. And here's the reasons they give. They say Job, uh, it appears, had the perfect Hebrew family. Seven sons, three daughters. That's just perfect for a Hebrew, the numbers, the balance, all the rest. They say that just seems a little bit fantastic. They say all these round numbers, we read them, 7,000, 3,500, just sort of sounds like something that you would make up. Uh, It almost reads like a fairy tale. There was this guy in the land of Uz, and nobody's quite sure. We'll get there in a minute where Uz is. Uh, And the whole thing just seems a little bit fantastic. When you get to the tragedies that fall on Job, you just think, really? Did that all happen just exactly like that? And so some people say it's a parable. They're not saying rip it out of your Bible. They're just saying they don't think it really happened. They don't think Job was a historical person. And they think it's a Hebrew work of wisdom literature to teach you things. I think it's an actual story. I think it's a historical story. And here's my reasoning, and then we're going to move on pretty quickly. The opening of the book of Job in Hebrew is almost word for word like the opening of several other stories in the Old Testament. You read about there was a man in this land, and this was his name, and this is what he was like. That's just kind of standard stuff for lots of other stories in the Old Testament that are, without question, intended to be historical. Another reason, we use round numbers all the time for everything. We use round numbers for all sorts of things. And it doesn't mean we're making them up. It just means that's how we communicate. How cold is it going to be next week? I don't know, like 10. Terrible. Let's go to Florida. Is it going to actually be 10? It might be 11, might be 15, might be 18. I don't know, but it's going to be cold. We use round numbers like that all the time. It doesn't mean we're not talking about something real. Here's the kicker and why I think it's historical. You always use the Bible to interpret the Bible, right? When you get to the book of Ezekiel, in Ezekiel chapter 14, Ezekiel talks about Noah, Daniel, and Job as a group in one comment so if you think one of them is fictional just a character in a parable you kind of got to throw the rest of them out with all of them and when you get to the new testament in the book of james at the very end of the book of james james talks about job and elijah in the same breath and we clearly would say no i think elijah was a real guy crazy stories I think he was a real historical person, and I think that's the best way that we should think about Job. It's a historical story. So that's what it is. Who wrote it? You ready for this? We don't know. Literally no idea. Uh, Some people say it couldn't have been Job because he dies at the end, and he couldn't have written about his own death. But that's how the book of Deuteronomy ends. Everyone sort of seems like Moses is behind the Torah, Genesis through Deuteronomy, and at the end of it, he dies, and he's buried on the mountain, and there's even a little bit more, and most people say, you know, maybe God told him to write that, or maybe someone else wrote that little part, and the Holy Spirit inspired that person to to put that ending on the book, and so it's not unprecedented uh, in the Bible. Maybe it was Job. Some people think it was Moses. There's pretty strong Jewish tradition that says Moses was the author Uh, of this book, and that would just be sort of based on the dating and the timeline. Some people think it was Elihu, that maybe the reason nobody acknowledged him is that his contribution was just written in, and he didn't actually say it out loud where everyone could hear it, and that's why nobody said anything to him in the end, and they just moved on as, as if he wasn't there. Maybe it was Elihu. Some people think it was Ezra. They think it was written way, way late at the very, very end of Israel's history, but I don't think that's very convincing. So my conclusion is I have no idea who wrote the book of Job, and because some of you like to sort of chase rabbits in different directions, I just want to cut you off at the pass and say no one knows what his name means, okay? I can pull five books off the shelf in my office that give you five completely different answers. No one knows. 
what this name means. Nobody has any idea, and I don't think you ought to read any, uh, too much significance into it. So those are what we don't know. Here's what we do know. Job was a godly man. He was a godly man. And I'm going to take a minute to talk about this. Just before Christmas, we went through a Wednesday night study called Training for Godliness. We just have talked for a whole semester on Wednesday nights about what godliness is. And if you were with us, you know that over and over and over again, every week, we made reference to a man named Jerry Bridges. And Jerry Bridges has a book called Respectable Sins. And one of the sins that he talks about is the sin of ungodliness. And Jerry Bridges says, ungodliness is living your life with little to no thought of God, little to no thought of God's will, little to no thought of God's glory, little to no thought of how you're dependent on God for everything. You go in a room once a week, you think spiritual thoughts, the other 99.9% .9 of your life, you go about your business as if he weren't there, you just live like everybody else. And he says in the book, that's ungodliness. And I think he's on to something. So if that's what ungodliness is, then godliness would be the opposite. It would be living your life, not just in this room, not just on Sunday mornings or Wednesday nights, living your life with the understanding that God is real, being concerned about what His will is for your life and caring about His glory in the everyday situations you find yourself in and acknowledging throughout your life, throughout your day, that you are dependent on Him for everything. That's what it would mean to be godly. Nowhere, nowhere, nowhere in our study through training for godliness the last semester on Wednesday nights, nowhere did we say godliness is 100% moral perfection without ever sinning. That's not how we defined it. We defined it as living your life oriented towards God with God at the center. So Job was a godly man. Let's make sense of what the text says here about Job. It tells us, number one, he was a blameless man. Job was a blameless man. The Hebrew word is tom. If you're old school and you carry around a King James version of the Bible, yours does not say that he was blameless. It says that he was perfect. And I don't think that's the best way to translate this particular Hebrew word. Uh, if you read, for example, in Job 13, 26, there's mention of Job's sins of his youth. Did you sin when you were a youth? Maybe? A little? So did Job. He wasn't perfect. He wasn't 100% sinless. When we get to the end of the book of Job, spoiler alert, he repents for a lot of the stuff that he says in the middle of the book. He's not sinless. He's not 100% morally perfect like Jesus, but the text is telling us that he's a blameless man. Number two, the text says he was upright. Upright. The Hebrew word here is yasar. You'll actually find this Hebrew word in Micah 7.2. Uh, in the ESV, Micah 7.2, it's translated not as upright, but it's actually translated as godly. And what the Hebrew word actually means is a construction man's, it's a building man's term. It's the idea of taking a string, stretching it level between two points so that you can lay a wall flat or build something straight and pulling it tight and level. And it's saying that's what Job's life is like. It's straight, it's level. It lines up with the things that it needs to line up with. That's how the author describes him. He was blameless, he was upright, and thirdly, he feared God. He feared God. The Hebrew word here is yareh. Proverbs 9.10 says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. So we presume that if Job was a man who feared God, he was probably also a wise man in many respects. We'll talk about fearing God here in just a minute. So he's blameless, upright, feared God, and he turned away from evil. He turned away from evil. The Hebrew word here for evil is ra. Tob and ra, good and evil. Think about the book of Genesis. Do not eat from the tree of the knowledge of tob, good, and ra, evil. Do not eat from that tree. 
And the Bible's telling us here that Job was a man who turned away from evil. So how do we understand Job being a godly man? Let me give you two biblical examples for how I think that you should think about Job. The first example is Noah. And you should think about Noah. When you read about Noah in Genesis chapter 6, it says he was righteous, blameless, and he walked with God. Righteous, blameless, and he walked with God. And just before the author of Genesis tells you those things about Noah, the author tells you that Noah found favor, literally grace, with God. The reason he lived that kind of life is because God's grace had been poured into his life. He was a changed man. He was a different man than all of the other people around him. Now, what was the first thing Noah did when he got off the ark? The end of his story. Planted a vineyard. What was the second thing he did? Built an altar, sacrifices. Third thing, he got drunk. Fourth thing, passed out naked in his tent, shamed himself, embarrassed his family. Is he 100% morally perfect and upright, never sinning? Is that how we ought to understand Noah? No. He's a man who found God's grace in his life. And by God's grace, these things were true of him. He was righteous and he was blameless and he walked with God. He really was different than all of the other people around him. He was different. That's what the author's telling you. Not telling you he's sinless. Telling you he's genuinely different. What about Zechariah? Zechariah and Elizabeth in the New Testament, in the Gospel of Luke. Kind of interesting. Luke tells us that Zechariah was righteous and he was walking blamelessly with God. Sound familiar? Yeah? What happened to Zechariah when the angel showed up and told him what God was going to do? He sort of said, come on, give me a break, man. Get out of here. You know how old I am? Have you seen my wife? And the angel said, you're not going to talk until he's born and he's named. Because you didn't believe. You're not sinless. Not perfect. So why would the author in that story tell you that he was righteous and walking blamelessly with God? Because the author is saying to you, this barrenness that him and his wife have suffered from for years has been crippling to them emotionally. God's not been punishing them for their sin. It's just making it very clear to you. It's not that they did some bad thing or they had some secret sin and so God was punishing them and and trying to get even with them or trying to spite them. That's not what's going on in that story. That's not why they were barren. And I think these two examples help you think about Job. I think when the author describes Job as a godly man, the author is saying, this man was different. Not your run-of-the-mill guy. This guy actually knew the Lord and his life was different. And this is the most important thing the author's telling you. Right out of the gate, he's telling you, all the stuff that's about to happen to Job, it's not because he's got some secret sin. It's not because he's some horrible person doing these horrible things. He actually is a godly man. And the things that are about to happen to him have absolutely nothing to do with any one or two or more particular sin or sins that he's committed in his life. And we'll see. What are they they related to? Why did these things happen? Well, it wasn't because God was punishing Job for anything that he had done. And the author's making that plain to you right here. So Barry Webb has a really good commentary on Job. He says, the opening five verses affirm the genuineness of Job's blamelessness, In the strongest possible terms, they are fundamental to all that follows. You can't make sense of the rest of this book if you don't understand what the author's telling you about Job the person. That all this horror that's about to fall on him is not God punishing him for something that he had had done or some sin that he had committed. So he's a godly man. A few more things about Job. We'll be quick here. Uh, He was incredibly wealthy. He was incredibly wealthy. And when the text says he was the greatest of the people of the East, notice that uh, it says, so that this man was the greatest of the East. And that so that, that explanatory clause is pointing back to all of the wealth that he had. He was incredibly wealthy. 
so wealthy that he was recognized as one of the greatest people of the East. We're going to talk more about money before we wrap up, but I just want to make one really important observation about money because sometimes Christians get confused, okay? I'm going to put a few things on the screen. It's possible for you to be godly and wealthy. That's possible. It's also possible for you to be godly and poor. You can be those two things at the same time. And, believe it or not, you can be ungodly and wealthy at the same time. And you can be ungodly and poor at the same time. Are we clear? Any of those combinations are possible. So we just, we're going to think rightly about money, and I think that's a good foundation to start. Our culture is caught right now in this weird trap where we all want to be wealthy. Just talking about average Americans, not even average Christian, average American. We all want to be wealthy, but we also sort of have a sneaking suspicion that all the wealthy people have done some bad thing to get their wealth, and they've hurt somebody else to get it. And yet we want it for ourselves. And you can just watch secular people sort of put themselves in the spin cycle of, I want all of that stuff and all of that wealth, but I also think that if you have it, you must be a horrible person. But I still want it. And round and round they go. Job was incredibly wealthy. Job had a family. He had a wife, seven daughter, or seven sons, three daughters. And in the weeks ahead, we're going to talk more about his family specifically. And as we close tonight, we'll talk more about family just generally. All right, next question. When did these things take place? Most likely, the events of Job took place during the time of the patriarchs. Patriarchs. So when we talk about patriarchs, we're talking about Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and the 12 tribes of Israel, the 12 sons of Jacob. I think that's the most likely time frame, time window for these events taking place. And I'll just give you a few reasons why I think that. People debated a lot. Uh, in the book of Job, there are over 30 occurrences of the name El Shaddai. Really, really common in the book of Job. That name for God, El Shaddai, the Almighty, which we sang about tonight, praise to the Lord, the Almighty, that name for God shows up most during the period of the patriarchs. And it shows up an awful lot in the book of Job. And so I think that's maybe one clue. When we talk about Job's wealth in this opening paragraph, it's not measured in gold. It's measured in livestock. And that's pretty typical of the patriarchal period uh, in the Old Testament. As we work through the book of Job, here's another reason I think it's the patriarchs uh, is a time window. There's no mention of a priesthood. There's no outside priest to offer sacrifices. Job is the one who's offering the sacrifices for his family. And you see that play out in the lives of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob the patriarchs. It's the head of the family that offers these sacrifices for the family. There's not yet the Levitical priesthood set up to call in a Levite. Uh, the Levites are down at the very end of the patriarchal period, and they only come into existence after the Exodus. So I think that's another clue. And then at the end, we see that Job lived about 140 years, and those long lifespans are typical. We can debate those on a, a side issue a different time. Those long lifespans are typical of the era of the patriarch. So I think when you think about Job, you're thinking about somebody who falls outside of Abraham's family, maybe somebody like Melchizedek. He's not necessarily part of Abraham's line, but he's sort of tangentially connected, and he doesn't worship idols, and he seems to know the truth about the one true God. Same thing is true of Jethro, Moses' father-in-law. He's not of this particular line of people, but he seems to be recognized as a priest who knows the Lord and uh, offers sacrifice to the Lord, and I think we put Job in that category. Uh, so, when did they take place? Probably during the time of the patriarchs. Where did he live? He lived not in Oz, but in Uz, the wonderful land of Uz, which was outside the promised land, possibly in an area called Edom. And if you want to trace this down, there is literally one clue in the whole Bible that tells us where the land of Uz was, and it's Lamentations 421 
Lamentations 4.21, it's almost a passing comment, and it connects us to the land of Edom. Sort of suggests that those two places are connected. So real quick, I'll just put a map up on the screen. Uh, you can see Egypt down at the bottom left, what we call Saudi Arabia right in the middle. Up at the top left is Turkey, and then Iraq and Iran would be over there on the top right. That green strip is Egypt. Okay, They live close to the water. It had to be close to the Nile. So that would be like the Egyptian empire during the time of the patriarchs. And up in that yellow, brownish is Assyria, and then the pink... Reddish pink is Old Babylon, and then those two circles that we'll put up there, the blue circle is what ends up being the promised land. I don't know if you've ever looked at Israel on a world map. It's really small. It's really, really. When you watch the news and you see this stuff going on over there, it's like they're across the block. They're just right on top of each other. It's a postage stamp piece of real estate. So the blue circle is going to end up being the promised land in Israel, and that red circle just kind of south and out to the east is what we would call Edom, and probably Job lived out in that direction somewhere, uh, but we're not entirely sure if you want to know the truth. So that's where he lived. Why was this book written? We're going to flesh this out over the next few months. Job was written to wrestle with the sovereignty of God and the problem of suffering. How do we square these two realities? How do we maintain our belief that God is sovereign over everything and square that with the suffering and the hardship that we face in our lives? Now, here's the most interesting thing about Job. You ready? Job doesn't get an answer to that question. You come all the way to the end of the book, and all the things we learn as the reader, Job doesn't get a lot of answers at the end, which I think is one of the things that the book is trying to teach us. That as the people of God, we walk by faith, not by sight. And that there's some things, we've been talking about the Trinity on Sunday mornings, or last Sunday we talked about the Trinity. There's some things that are just big, huge things, and we say, look, I'm going to receive this on faith, and I'm going to believe it, but I'm not sure I can really process all this. Job doesn't get a lot of answers at the end of the book. So let's make sense of this one paragraph. What do we learn from Job 1, 1 to 5? I just want you to see five truths about this opening paragraph. Number one, I think we should seek to live godly lives, and that involves fearing God. Job is commended for this, for being a godly man and being somebody who fears God. What does it mean to fear the Lord? It does not mean that you stand before the Lord in abject terror like you would feel if you stood before someone like Vladimir Putin and he was determining your fate. We think that his character is completely different than the Lord's. So when you think about that kind of fear, that's not the kind of fear that we have before the Lord because we know his character. We know that he's good and that he's merciful and he's kind and his steadfast love endures forever. But it's also, to fear the Lord, it's also not to just say, well, I really respect Him. I really admire the Lord. I really look up to Him. Like if your hero walked in the room and you said, oh, I really respect you and look up to you and admire you. That's not it either. Okay? Fearing the Lord. It happens when you realize the difference between God in you. It happens when you realize that God is transcendent and exalted and high and lifted up and you're not. It happens when you recognize like Isaiah that God is holy and you are a person of unclean lips. It happens when you humble yourself and you recognize that He is the creator and you are the creature. When you have this perspective in place, the creator-creature distinction and the holiness of God in your sinfulness, when you see these things rightly, you begin to fear the Lord. And until you see them rightly, you don't fear the Lord. It's impossible. You have to know the truth about who He is, and you have to know a baseline truth about who you are as a sinner. And when these things come together, the result is the fear of the Lord. So we should seek to live Lives that are marked by fearing God. And we should seek to live godly lives. I'm not challenging you in this opening sermon 
to be 100% morally perfect because you're not capable of that as a fallen, sinful human being. What I'm challenging you to do when I say live a godly life is put God at the center of your life and live your life, not just in this room, but the entirety of your life. Acknowledging God, that He's real, being concerned for what His will is for your life, being concerned about His glory in your life, and recognizing that you are completely dependent on Him. Godly lives, fearing God. By the way, that's the conclusion of Ecclesiastes. If you were with us when we went through Ecclesiastes. Here's the end of the matter. All has been heard. Fear God and keep His commandments. Orient your life around His Word. So, number one, godly lives fearing God. Number two, we should live lives of repentance and faith. And I think Job did that. And I think this opening chapter doesn't describe Job as a man who never sinned. I think it actually describes him as a man who was repentant and believing. He's a man who had faith. It says he turned away from evil. And we've talked already that the book of Job acknowledges the sins of his youth. And at the end of the book, this is exactly what he does. He repents. He turns from his folly. He confesses it to God and he says, I was way out of my league and I shouldn't have said any of those things that I said. I repent. He uses that word, I repent. He repents and he's a believing man. Why do I say that he's a believing man? It's because the text says that he offers sacrifices. Believing that while he and his children deserve death, that God in his mercy might accept a substitute. That somebody might be able to stand in their place and die so that they might live. He's a man of repentance and he's a man of faith. When Jesus began to preach, Mark chapter 1, the very first thing Jesus said was repent and believe because the kingdom of God has come. Repent and believe. Job did that. When we talk about repentance and faith, sometimes people who are church people think, oh, I need to do that once. Like, I ought to do that. Because all of life, all of your life is marked by repentance and faith. When Martin Luther, look, our kids are going to study the, the solas of the Reformation this weekend. When Martin Luther nailed the 95 theses on the door of the church in Wittenberg, the very first thesis said this, when the Lord and Master Jesus Christ said repent, he willed the entire life of believers to be one of repentance. Repentance is not just that thing you do when you buy an indulgence at the church. It's not just that thing when you, you do when you bow down in front of a candle. It's not just that thing you do when you're in this room in a Baptist church or you come down to the altar, whatever. It's not just a one-time thing, but it's something that marks the entirety of your life, turning from sin and turning to Jesus in faith. Number three, we should think biblically about money. That is not a main central point of the book of Job, but it is certainly a part of this opening paragraph. That Job was an incredibly wealthy man. He was godly and he was wealthy. Both of those are true. Uh, I see a quote on social media. I feel like I see it about once a month. It's from Jim Carrey, uh, the actor-comedian, and he said, I wish everyone could get rich and famous and everything they ever dreamed of so they can see that it's not the answer. Now, to me, that's kind of rich, no pun intended. There's nothing like rich people lecturing you about richness and saying, oh, it's not all it's cracked up to be. It's such a great burden that I have all this money. And, uh... But they are right. When they say things like that, wish you could have all the money you wanted and realize it's not everything it's cracked up to be. How might we think rightly about money? I'll just give you a few very quick thoughts. Number one, money's a gift from God. That's clear from Proverbs 3 and it's clear from the book of James. Every good gift comes from God. If you have wealth, God is to thank for that. Number two, money provides unique temptation. Unique temptation. Entirely possible to be godly and wealthy. Entirely possible. But money, having it, provides unique temptation to those who have it. And I gave you a few verses. You can work through these. Matthew 6, you can't serve God in money. Matthew 19, it's hard for the rich to enter the kingdom of heaven. 
Luke 6, Jesus said, If you trust in riches, you have already received your consolation. Luke 12, Jesus said, Watch, take care, and watch for covetousness. Annas and Sapphira lost, Ananias and Sapphira, they lost their life because they lied about money. Lied to the Holy Spirit. 1 Timothy 6.10, be very careful how you quote this vote. Uh, this verse, Paul says to Timothy, the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. does not say money is the root of all evil. The love of money is a root of all kinds of sin and evil in your life. Money brings temptation. And believe it or not, money helps us understand the gospel. 2 Corinthians 8, 9. Jesus was immeasurably rich. And he became poor. So that you could become rich. Not with a big bank account. But that you could be blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. The one who was rich became poor so that you who are poor might become rich. Think rightly about money. Next, we should lead our children in matters of faith. I think Job did this. He's the patriarch of his family. He's the leader. He embraces his role. There's folks who say that he's enabling his children to sin. By offering these sacrifices on their behalf. Uh, but there's no developed sacrificial system, Levitical system, Mosaic law at this point. He's not going outside of that. He's doing exactly what the patriarch of the family ought to do in this era of redemptive history. And he's not offering sacrifices so that his kids can be wild and crazy and do abominable things. He's offering these sacrifices because maybe they accidentally cursed God in their heart. And he's concerned about them. He's trying to lead his family. We don't live in the patriarchal period. You don't have to go offer blood sacrifices for your family. But you do have a responsibility for your family, for your kids, for your grandkids, for the people that God has brought into your home and given you influence over. You have responsibility for them. It's your responsibility to lead them in matters of faith and matters of godliness. Mother's Day is coming, May 12th, 2024. On Mother's Day at Emmanuel, we always have parent-child dedication. And it is not just a time where we say, oh, look at the cute babies. But we bring the cute babies up with their parents, and we look the parents in the eye and we say, parents, do you commit to bring your kids to church? Do you commit to discipline your kids? Do you promise to teach your kids the gospel? And do you promise to set a godly example for your kids to follow? All we're saying is, parents, will you embrace the responsibility of leading these young people in matters of faith? Kids, grandkids, whatever, you have a responsibility. Last, we all live east of Eden, which means we will experience suffering and death. I told you Job's a story. If you're going to understand a story, you've got to at least know the beginning and the end. How does the book of Job begin? Okay, your Bible might be open, but I'll put it up on the screen. book of Job begins with, there was a man in the land of us whose name was Job. Very first verse. Here's the last verse. You ready for this encouraging, Jim? Job died. That's how it ends. He dies in the end. That's the end of the book. Job dies. He died, an old man and full of days. And what happened in the middle of the book? He received many blessings from God and he received suffering from God, both. Can I let you in on a little secret? That's the story of your life. Once upon a time, there was a person named so-and-so who lived in Odessa, Texas. And in the course of your life, there's going to be blessing, and there's going to be suffering, and in the end, you're going to die. We talked about that a lot in the book of Ecclesiastes, didn't we? These reflective wisdom books really go together. That's the story of your life. You should expect it. That's what you should expect and anticipate. It's not unusual when those things happen. When God is good to you and He blesses you and when you suffer and life is hard and then in the end when you die. 
None of that is unusual. That's the story of your life. Expect it. Now, there were some unexpected things in Job's life. I love this quote from David Allen. Job was just sitting there minding his own business, serving God faithfully when all hell broke loose in his life. Literally. Literally. Look, in Genesis 3, Adam and Eve sinned against the Lord. And a curse was brought on everything they had dominion over and the curse was placed on them and they had to leave the garden. They were sent into exile. And they were kicked out of the garden to the east and there was a cherubim placed in the east side of the garden to guard the way. That's what it means to live east of Eden. Okay, I don't think it's a coincidence that Job lives in the east. I think he's a real person. And I think he probably lives in the east. And I think the author's talking about more than geography, and the author's saying to you, look, we're not in paradise. This story that's about to unfold, we're not in the garden anymore. We've gone east. We're in the east. If you were with us for Ecclesiastes, the preacher of Ecclesiastes said, you live life under the sun. You're on the clock. Sun's going round and round. You're on the clock. Life under the sun. And your life is Hebel. It's that quick. It's a breath. It's a mist. It's a sigh. It's a fog. It's smoke. It's here. And then it's gone. You're a person. God's going to bless you. You're going to suffer. And then you're going to die. And the books of Job and Ecclesiastes are written to give you wisdom in that middle part. So that you can be a wise person. Listen, if you can learn to understand Job's story, you'll be able to understand your life. And if you can learn to trust Job's God, you'll be able to trust the true God. This is your story. It's not just Job. It's not just, oh, that's a guy. Rough life. A lot of suffering. But it's my story and it's your story living in a fallen world, and it's wisdom pointing us to know the truth about the one true God. So let me pray for us and we'll close. Father, we're grateful for the Bible. We're grateful for wisdom literature in the Bible. Lord, left to ourselves, we're foolish people. Uh, We're simple people. There's so many things we don't understand, we can't figure out on our own, and so we're thankful that you have spoken to us. We're thankful for wisdom. We want to be godly people. We want to fear you rightly we want to be people whose lives are marked by repentance and faith we want to embrace the stewardship of wealth and the stewardship of family and ultimately we want to live as wise people as we live in a fallen world and we live east of Eden and we live our lives out under the sun so Lord we pray that you would make us wise as we work our way through this book Uh, help us to understand and help us uh, to have faith in who you are and the promises that you make to your people. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.